Welcome to the Road to Seven podcast, guiding and supporting entrepreneurs along their road to seven figures and beyond. Here's your host, Sheila Cummins. If you want to build a SaaS, if you're wondering what a SaaS is, or if you've ever wondered about how to make a SaaS a huge success and eventually sell it, then you need to listen to our episode today. I am interviewing Catherine Graham, who is the CEO of CommonSkew, which is a workflow collaboration platform which enables product-based businesses to seamlessly work with supplier partners and clients. It was originally built in-house for Right Sleeve, a promotional products agency where Catherine spent 12 years as president before selling the business in 2019. Catherine played a variety of roles prior to Right Sleeve and Common Skew. She spent several years doing financial planning for fast-track individuals and entrepreneurs at TD Bank. After pursuing an MBA at the Rotman School of Management, she joined the newly formed eBay Canada and launched two categories in the Canadian marketplace. Catherine joined A.T. Kearney as a management consultant, working with Fortune 500 companies in a wide variety of areas, including merger integration, marketing strategy, and operational efficiency. Outside of work, Catherine is a mother to three children ranging in age from 15 to 10 years old and spends a lot of time in the hockey rink, coaching the teams of all three kids. She also sits on a variety of boards and committees in the nonprofit space, such as the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network, the Lauren Scholar Foundation, Communitech, Next Canada, and Futurepreneur. This is an episode which is going to give you the nitty gritty on getting your SaaS out in the market. I hope you enjoy the interview. Catherine, I've been looking forward to having this conversation for quite a while because your entrepreneurial journey is just so amazing to me. It's been such an evolution. Tell us a little bit about you and your journey and what you've done. First of all, I'm excited to be having this conversation because I miss our conversations at the hockey rink. So I know. It's so nice to I see know. you. We talk to you. So our <laughs> girls used to play hockey together and hopefully they'll be together again next year yeah. uh, just because of their ages. So that's how I know Catherine. Yeah. No, it's fun. It's fun to be here been um, interesting and winding road, one of which I never really anticipated when I began my career in the banking world way back when. And yeah. I think that part of, you know, one interesting kind of, you know, learning on that front um, and making that transition has just been just around the importance of kind of keeping your eyes open to opportunity and totally different things that you never might have thought you were on the path to do. And um, I think having kind of kept that open mind, um, just opened up, you know, a different path that I, that has been a really, really fun, exciting journey over the past kind of almost 15 years now. Yeah. <laughs> so your husband originally started Right Sleeve Promotions, but then you ended up joining him. That's Tell right. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that that was um, that was a very pivotal time in that I had been working in management consulting, and uh, after our first child was born, the hours and travel and everything kind of that, that entailed um, yeah. was making it pretty challenging to think about going back to right. that environment. Yeah. And at the time, um, Riceley was going through some kind of interesting growth challenges and. Uh, just, you know, that aspect of, of the development of the business. And um, as we started kind of talking about that more and trying to figure out kind of what, where to take, take the business, 
Uh, Mark ultimately convinced me to come on board for a couple days a week. Yeah. A couple days a week, you know, just yeah. to help out was <laughs> that's was what they always say. <laughs> <laughs> I think what became, you know, pretty clear to me pretty quickly was just how much fun it was kind of doing small business and right. ultimately kind of what that meant for us as a family in terms mm-hmm. of flexibility and um, also just what it meant for me in terms of my you know professional journey of uh, you know, taking over running a team and trying to figure out how to kind of take it to the next level and how to put in place a lot of kind of process and basically the career kind of paths of those who are joining the organization as to how it is that we could set that up for scale and, and give them something exciting to join and be a part of and to be able to grow within. So right. it took a lot of kind of what um, I had learned during my MBA and being able to kind of put all those pieces together in, in a way that um, quickly became a lot more interesting than thinking back of thinking of going back to the corporate world. <laughs> was, it, uh, was it hard to work with your husband with two little kids at home? Yeah, I mean, initially, um, coming in as the boss's wife is a pretty interesting, <laughs> uh, certainly, you know, I, I think I had to um, check my ego a bit at the door sure. of having been working sure. with, you know, really big companies and working with, you know, C-suite level people and solving big problems and, you know, going out for fancy dinners and all the stuff that kind of being in the consulting world entails and um, to come into, at the time, a five-person organization as the boss's right. wife was um, definitely not what I had thought I would be doing at that stage. But I think that once the team realized that, you know, this wasn't like a, a pity play as far as trying sure. to give the boss's wife a job to do, that yeah. it, uh, um, I think that it things moved pretty quickly in terms of, you know, adapting to what it was that I was bringing to the table from a skill set perspective. And then, you know, ultimately, as we started to build the technology in-house, um, which, uh, you know, we'll get into, it ultimately became common skew that things, you know, took on a totally different path as far as, you know, what my role was in the organization. And, and I, um, you know, during that time period, you know, took over running the business, essentially. So. Right. Well, and I think that that's sort of the transition that I'd love to talk a little bit more about. I know that a lot of the listeners would love to be creating a SaaS, something that provides consistent value where you as the business owner are receiving consistent income on a monthly level. Uh, That's a real shift and a real I'm going to say a point of envy for a lot of entrepreneurs. I often hear people saying, oh, I just need to be able to create you know, this product that I could just sell. Tell us how you went from doing promotional products through Right Sleeve to this whole idea of common skew and it being its own entity. How did that happen? So when we first we first built the software in-house to solve the pain point that we were experiencing at the time, which right. was how to scale a business that had tremendous logistical complexity. So those that aren't familiar with the promotional industry, essentially, you know, it's branded merchandise and the actual mechanics of how it is that you create swag or a promotional product is actually really complicated from a supply chain perspective. So you have hundreds of factories you're potentially working with. Mm -hmm. You have a ton of information that has to get communicated in terms of, you know, sizes and colors and SKUs and um, and artwork and decoration locations and colors and specifics and, you know, sizes and of the imprint areas and all those things that have to get communicated across a number of different factories over a very short period of time. And typically with the end objective of coordinating, you know, anywhere from a handful to to um, to many different products from different factories that have to end up at the same destination at the same time. Right. So 
when we looked at kind of what was out there to support kind of that um, that complexity and to be able to accommodate you know growth around that there just weren't any options for a small business and mm-hmm. you could either you know pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to customize SAP or Oracle or something that um, could you know accomplish that that to handle that complexity but that's just not feasible as right. a small business right. and this was the time this was back in um, you know 2005 when the world was really changing at that mm-hmm. time in terms of cloud and um, you know how it is what the expectations were as far as flexibility in terms of being able to work and all the systems that we were looking at that we might be able to to you know, either utilize or, or, or adapt, we're all server-based and mm-hmm. that that's not where the future is. So we ultimately made the crazy at the time decision to build this in-house. And yes. unfortunately, we were very naive in terms of what it would actually take as far as, you know, time, money, focus, you know, all the rest. And um, But as I say, it was never intended with, with uh, it was never built with the intent of commercializing it. It was always built with the intent of solving our own pain point and where kind of, things evolved from there was that in realizing a few years in that we had done something that had utterly transformed the business, mm-hmm. uh, that that's when we started to kind of think, hmm, like that might be something, you know, interesting that we have on our hands here. Right. And how did you go from, talk us through the process of how you went from, I have this problem, I need this to talk to this, to talk to this, to talk to this, to working with someone to create a software to make that happen. Did mm-hmm. you have a, a, a software guy? Did yes. you have the guy? Yeah, <laughs> the guy. We fortunately the had guy? an awesome guy. We yeah. had, uh, someone who um, we had been working with for years who had done, uh, we were early adopters of building um, e-commerce mm-hmm. on, on the web back in, you know, this was back in 2003. And yeah. so we had done all these great front-end solutions for our customers. Mm-hmm. And then we were working with, you know, duct tape and band-aids in the back end to get yeah. orders out the door and he was fortunately one of those you know very kind of multi-talented um you know jack of all trades type developers that was capable of doing front end and back end yeah and that uh so when we went to him with this idea of well we've done all these great things for the front end like why let's talk about kind of what we could do to handle the you know the back end of the business and uh, he was fortunately had kind of a flexible enough skill set um, that he was able to um, start developing that. And ultimately, he hired someone in addition to um, to help him with the building of it because it was right. too big for one person to kind of tackle. Sure, uh, but it was a, a very interesting kind of learning process going through that as being a non technical person. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about development. I mm-hmm. uh, knew you know nothing about the cloud, the web, you know, any of those things. And so the journey of learning that, um, of, you know, working with him on that, but then realizing once we made the decision to spin the business out, you know, what huge gaps in knowledge I still had in terms of how it is that you then look at building a technology organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was there ever any hesitation to sell to essentially your competitors something that would make their businesses more efficient and stronger? Yes, certainly. We, we we absolutely thought about that in the beginning as far mm-hmm. as, you know, what is Right Sleeve's secret sauce? And, you know, is the technology our secret sauce? And at the end of the day, the technology was a fantastic enabler, but we felt that at the at the core of it, our secret sauce was the you know, strategy and design and kind of, you know, partnership approach that we brought to our clients. Mm-hmm. And the software has made it really efficient and easy to do business. Um, But ultimately, if, you know, 
as the world was evolving in that regard, and we knew that certainly other players were going to start having you know software solutions that they were utilizing too, that we didn't feel that that was ultimately going to be the difference between what was going to make Rightsley successful. So by right. focusing on the core of you know the as I say the strategy, the design, the team, the creativity, kind of that they were bringing to the table and, and working in partnership with clients, um, that if we were to turn around and license this to other companies, that wasn't going to take away from what it is that Right Sleep was good at. Right. And the other piece of it is that we found in the beginning, um, we focused exclusively on the U.S. in the beginning. I mean, first right. of all, because the market opportunity was so much bigger there, mm-hmm. um, but also because that question never came up in the U.S. of like, oh, you have, you own a competitor. You know, you're going to try and take our clients. Like that question came up all the time in Canada. And in the U.S., they viewed it as being a fantastic positive. It's like you walk a mile in our shoes every single day and you understand, you know, what it's like to run this business. And so they viewed that as being a very positive thing and what it is that we could bring to the table from a software perspective. Why do you think there's the difference between the two countries? (laughs) <laughs> there's there is um some very interesting cultural differences that I discovered yeah. you know over the years in selling on both sides of the border. Uh-huh. Uh, the U.S. is I mean f- first of all to give some context, um, the promotional products business is very regional. So okay. a lot of companies are focused within a specific kind of, you know, square kilometer radius of what mm-hmm. is around them. And there's just mm-hmm. so much opportunity within the industry. They don't have to go much further than that. So there are not many U.S. businesses that are selling in Canada. Okay. And there aren't that many Canadian businesses that are selling in the U.S. Right. So there was that kind of distinction to begin with. I thought, oh, you're a Canadian you know, promotional products company. I'm not going to worry about you being that competitor. Mm-hmm. So there was that. The second piece is, is that we found that um, U.S. companies in general were far more willing to take risk. Mm-hmm. And so for a company that was earlier stage and that hadn't been around for years, that they were far more willing to kind of uh, jump in and say, okay, you know, this looks like an interesting solution. I'm just going to go for it. Mm-hmm. And Canadian companies were far more conservative. Interesting. Far took far longer in making decisions as well. And we still see that in terms yeah. of just the, the sales cycle of what it takes to work with a Canadian company versus what it takes to work with a U.S. company and the approaches they take toward investing in their business, mm-hmm. um, the kind of entrepreneurial spirit. I would say that that's, you know, on the U.S. side is just far more um, willing to kind of get out there and see the value in, mm-hmm. in you know, making that investment and kind of pushing the business forward. Right, right. That very interesting differences. And I actually noticed that too, in working with women from the U.S. and women from Canada, the sales conversations are very different. The sales tactics are very different. Even the sales pages that we use are really different because there's different triggers for different cultures. Really, Absolutely. And yeah. even what we found within selling within the U S just the regional differences of right. how it is that, you know, someone in Texas buys versus someone in New York versus someone mm-hmm. in LA. And that right. we certainly had to kind of look at all those different nuances as well. And our, our VP sales for common skew lives in the U S oh, and that was, you know, that was what she, she, she does hello (laughs) and that was very deliberate both in terms of you know ultimately the market that we were serving um, but also in terms of just that that approach to the market and that more kind of what I would call aggressiveness as far as as the sales side is concerned it's the sale goes so you hear you were running two businesses you had the common skew which was the software you had the right sleeve promotions how did you whole common skew out of right sleeve so that people could see the common skew as its own identity. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, when uh, we made the decision to go for it, it, we spun it out completely as a separate legal entity. Okay. And made it clear from the beginning that they were two totally different two businesses. totally different companies, yeah. different business registrations, different everything. exactly, very okay. different branding. Um, yeah. You know, and obviously very different go to market strategies. The initially the development team was you know embedded in the right sleeve office. They had a little kind of you know carve out space in the right sleeve office where um, where they could sit. And then we had a, um, a very fortuitous circumstance happen about uh, maybe t- uh, two a year, year, two years, a year and a half into the journey, and that the, um, the people that have been in the office space right next to ours uh, did a midnight run. He just picked up and disappeared one night and oh. left their lease and left all their equipment and left oh, wow. everything. And so all of a sudden we had this space next door to us that was available. And so we jumped on it and that became Kominsky's office. Uh-huh. So ultimately we moved the team over there. The offices, we connected them with a doorway, you know, an internal mm-hmm. doorway. So we still, you know, shared, you know, a coffee maker and you sure. know, whatever else in terms of we still have lunch know, some, together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some some resources. But um, that's that kind of began the distinction of it being a, a very uh, of creating separation kind of between yeah. the two businesses and yeah. then um, we stayed we were able to kind of grow into that space up until last year and then we were like we literally had taken down in that space a storage closet that the developers then moved kind of into that footprint of where that old you know that room little storage room not a closet a storage yeah. room kind of was yeah. um we crammed kind of you know this team of four into this you know little pod in this in this area and uh, we were just absolutely bursting at the seams and yeah. fortunately the neighbors next door to that space um then their lease was up and we managed to um take that space and so commonscue moved into that space um just in the spring of this year so you've still continue to expand. Tickets are going on sales very soon for Power Up Live, my live in-person event that will be happening at the end of September 2020, where we will go through the seven pillars that are required for you to build a seven-figure business. You will leave the event with your seven-figure roadmap, your blueprint to success, to grow your business to wherever it is that you want. It doesn't matter if you want to hit seven figures or not. These are the pillars on which every successful business needs to be built. If you want to get on the wait list and be the first to hear about tickets, then head on over to SheilaCummins.com slash live and get your name on the wait list so that you can grab one of the VIP spots that are sitting there waiting for you. I'll see you there through those pivotal moments of leaving your corporate to jumping into right sleeve to saying yes to building the software to taking the software moving it into its own company who mentored you along your journey mm-hmm. who where did you go for either words of wisdom or someone to hold your hand how did how did you get support through those big big decisions yeah, I, I would say um, th- that's a bit of a gap for me in mm-hmm. that I, I wish there had been, you know, people along the way that mm-hmm. that were um, uh, that were able to kind of hold my hand more. There are a couple of things that were instrumental in kind of helping me, you know, guide me through that process. And that when we first uh, were establishing Commons Q, I went out and talked to as many people as I could within my network mm-hmm. um, and asked a bunch of really stupid questions at the time yeah. <laughs> as far as, 
what does this even mean in terms of understanding, you know, code structures and languages and architecture yes. decisions and all these like really big decisions that we were having to make at the time around how it is that we, because we totally blew up the platform when we spun it out. Um, it was because it was never built with the intent of being a multi-tenant application. So we right. had to re-architect the whole thing. And so we were making really big decisions at the time that were going to be potentially, you know, that could set us up for success and scaling or that could end up hampering kind of growth down the road. And I knew yeah. nothing about any of this kind of stuff. Yeah. So fortunately, I had friends, you know, that right. had that had um, software businesses, and that I felt felt kind of safe asking some really dumb questions to. <laughs> and also, just as far as understanding kind of what the roles and and a software organization looked like, and therefore mm-hmm. what I should be hiring in terms right. of, um, you know, uh, even just job descriptions, you know, kind of technical talent, you know, all those pieces. And and it's funny because obviously, you know eight years in, I look back and I just shake my head about how little I knew back then in comparison to what I know now. Um, but you have to start somewhere. And I think that being willing to be vulnerable yeah. in kind of acknowledging that you don't know these things and mm-hmm. being willing to, you know, ask the stupid questions and people that you feel kind of safe with, I think was, was, was pivotal. I wish that I'd had kind of someone who could have mentored me more during mm-hmm. that time because they were mm-hmm. very kind of, you know, ad hoc coffee conversations that I was able to, you know, grab some people's time. Um, but where kind of the, the pivotal piece from a mentorship perspective came in was when we um, raised uh, angel funding for right. a few years into the journey. And our investor was absolutely instrumental during mm-hmm. those, that next phase of growth. He was mm-hmm. just such a... Um, had such great input in terms of things we should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he was that great combination of being the cheerleader when you needed it, the kick in the pants when you should be kind of pushing things faster, you know, yes. uh, patient long-term kind of horizon yeah. and was just such a, and he continues to this day to be such a fantastic kind of influence um, in the business. But, but it's funny because he's, you know, an investor and, you know, technically an informal board member. We don't have a formal board right now. Yeah. I, it's hard to call him a mentor because he's directly kind of involved in the business. But yeah. um, certainly I wish that I had, you know, more kind of people along the way that, uh, that could have helped kind of guide. And that's why I mentor a lot now because right. I can no way of trying to give back for what, you know, I feel is a real gap at that, in that time in the journey. Well, I feel like you were a trailblazer. I mean, you were one of the first. Now it's quite common to see um, SaaS as being unrolled daily, really. But, you know, five, six years ago, it wasn't a everyday kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What did you have to do to get Common Skew ready for investment? Um, getting it to the point where we had proved uh, product market fit so yeah. that we knew that there were, because uh, initially, you know, you've built this for yourself and you mm-hmm. think, well, is this replicable to others who run their businesses maybe differently or yeah. who have a different, you know, go to market. And um, obviously we were, we, were, we were focused very specifically in the promotional industry, selling specifically to promotional products companies. So yes. we felt there would be a good product market fit, um, but ultimately being able to prove people were willing to pay for this mm-hmm. and that that was not just, you know, people that were paying us out of pity, but <laughs> they're really nice. We'll, we'll support them by, you know, by uh, jumping in and, and, you know, trying this out. Um, but then ultimately when it became clear that there, it, that there was an opportunity here and that we needed funds to take it to this next stage. I mean, yeah. the challenge of with SAS is that you 
pour money in for years before you start to see a return because the monthly licensing amounts are very small and it takes a long time to get out of that cash flow trough kind of Mm -hmm. as you are in the building stages until you start to have a a, a substantial enough number of customers on board that it starts to pay for itself. And so that trough is deep and dangerous in terms of how far, you know, it can go on for. And ultimately that's before you even start to, you know, pour sales and marketing fuel on the fire. Right. You've got to put so much in the front end. Yeah. How did you find your investor? How did you guys connect? It's a a very um, uh, funny kind of small world story. So I had been just starting to educate myself on the space. Again, I knew nothing about Mm -hmm. venture capital, knew nothing Mm -hmm. about, you know, angel investors. I just was not familiar with that world because right sleeve had been bootstrapped and it was a a services-based business. And so not the typical kind of business that you would raise money for. Mm -hmm. So I just started to have, you know, conversations again, reaching out to anyone I knew in the network that could help educate me on, you know, what the, what the landscape looked like, um, you know, who, who were companies uh, that got involved in earlier stage investments? What's, how far along did you need to be in order to mm-hmm. be able to, um, to consider kind of that? And um, got connected to, so his name is John, our, our investor, um, got connected to him through a friend of mine from um, MBA oh. who was actually living out in Newfoundland at the mm. time. And his wife is from Newfoundland and they had moved out there and he was involved in the tech community out there. And John has a, um, a summer place out in Newfoundland. And as a result of of being out there in the summers, he'd gotten involved kind of in the tech community. And so they had met each other. And so um, my friend, as I was kind of talking to him about this, you know, fact-finding kind of journey that I was on in terms of understanding the landscape. He said, oh, you should talk to this guy, John. Like, he's yeah. he's an angel investor. He might be able to kind of um, give you a sense of, you know, what it's all about. And so yeah. when um, he connected us and John specifically said, you know, I'm not taking on any other investments right now, my portfolio is full. Right. And I said, that's perfect because I have no idea whether that's even what we're looking for. And yeah, so it was yeah. a very, very low-risk kind of conversation initially. Yeah. And um, we started to spend, you know, more time together consistently kind of over a period of months and I think I think it was literally like a year over a year later after having gotten together every one to two months and just kind of talked through what was going on and getting his opinion on things and and all that I said you know I think that I've made the decision that we need to to do this raise because I was you know um, wrestling with it myself in terms sure. of what does this mean as far as giving up equity? What kind right. of path does this put us on? Are we on a treadmill now in terms of, you know, results and someone else is going to now have, have, you know, say and potential yeah. control and kind of all those things that fundraising means. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's part of what I've been talking to him about. And so when I said, you know, all right, you know, I think, I think we need to go down this path of, of raising money. And he said, well, I want to invest. And I was like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So it was just one of those, uh, you know, when I tell people that story now, I feel like a bit of a jerk because I know how hard fundraising is and that this happened to just kind of, you know, fall into my lap for all intents and purposes. But I think that the learning end of it really though, it's it's relationship development. I was just going to say importance of that is that you can't just waltz in and pitch an idea and expect someone to invest in your business. And just that, that importance of fostering those relationships and pulling, drawing someone in. And in this case, it was totally, you know, naive and unintentional on my part that I was kind of drawing him in and even know that, you know, he was evaluating me at the time. I didn't know that. Again, the naivety kind of uh, helped me in that regard but but I think just knowing that um you have to get people interested and excited before you can then kind of think about 
pitching them for money. And if if they see kind of that your business is on a good path and they see an opportunity there and they have dry powder that they want to you know deploy, then that yeah. will just naturally happen. Right. You know, I think I feel like your network has been this beautiful support system through the whole journey, you know, back to the beginning days. And then, you know, am I going to build this new, new business? And it's just been such a resource for you. How did you cultivate that network in the beginning? I think that we, what was a, a very kind of serendipitous thing is RightSleep was the sponsor of something called the Mesh Conference, which mm-hmm. was years and years and years ago, but it was one of the first tech conferences that happened in Toronto. Oh. And it went on for many years. And uh, but being involved in that, we met some very interesting people just in the community in general. And that kind of started our mm. involvement, you know, in the tech community and then kind of, you know, went on from there. It's interesting. One of the people who was first involved in that was uh, Mike McDermott, who's the CEO of FreshBooks. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the people that we called when we were first setting up and FreshBooks was much earlier stage at the time when we yeah. talked to him, but, um, you know, about setting up a organization and what the roles were and so it's just like that was as a result of having you know known him through through mesh and so it was yeah so it was just that was the kind of interesting beginning of it but then I've tried to you know whether it's attending you know conferences or events in Toronto um, I got involved in an organization called the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network Mm -hmm. um, which was a global group that's been amazing in terms of support um, from from that perspective Mm -hmm. I think just actively looking at you know, how you can get tapped into communities that are going to be helpful to you in building your business, but also at the same time being protective of your time because you could spend, you know, all your time out kind of, you know, networking and attending conferences and all those things and not focus on actually building the business. Yeah, for sure. Catherine, you made reference to giving back and mentoring others. What organizations are you involved in now? Mm-hmm. So formally, I'm involved um, in Futurepreneur. Yeah, um, I'm, I mentored for the next next Canada or next 36, as it was called at the time. Informally, through uh, just other people that I kind of meet, you know, along the way, that uh, either want to just grab coffee or have a conversation. Sure. Um, the I sit on the board of Communitech, so uh-huh. have gotten you know to meet some others kind of through that. Uh, connection as well. Um, I obviously have a total bias towards mentoring female entrepreneurs, (laughs) and especially those that are in tech, um, because uh, I I just think that there's um, a a real, it's it's lessening, but I feel that there's a real fear on the part of women around the perception of getting involved in tech and what that means and what the perception is of kind of what they need to have from a skill sets and knowledge perspective. And I think that I have kind of lived that journey as being a non-technical founder and ultimately kind of, you know, can help people from the, you know, just considering kind of this, you know, what that journey, you know, looked like and ultimately the path to to get there. So that's definitely the area that I've been involved in um, the most from a mentoring perspective. Do you think it's been more difficult for you as a woman in tech as it would be for a man in tech? From a fundraising perspective, yes. Yeah. Um, so we we tried to go down the VC path a couple of years ago, and that mm-hmm. was a just stick a fork in my eye process. Right. There's mm-hmm. no question in my mind there is still heavy bias um, in that space. I, I think that there's they're working at it for sure, um, but we've got a long way to go <laughs> before um, we can get there. And I think that one of the things that was the most that has been the most eye opening in that journey is that women. And this is the the um, it's in Sheryl Sandberg's book about they when they put want to put themselves forward for a promotion that they feel they need to have you know ninety percent of the qualifications of the skills for the job before they right. feel that they're qualified for it, and it's the same thing um, when it comes to pitching is that 
women want to present a plan and a vision that they can deliver upon. Mm-hmm. And men have no problem going in and saying that they're going to be a hundred million dollar company in three years, right? And and just kind of throwing stuff out there in terms of projections and the hockey stick and you know all those right. kind of things. Right. And I think that you know me personally, I can't do that. So I think that that's something that has hampered women from a fundraising perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think that there is a tremendous opportunity for VCs to be able to uh, to realize that and yeah. to be able to um to get you know engaged with the community in a way that that ultimately the stats prove it out as far as their returns are higher on female-run businesses well they are and women are known for paying back loans <laughs> faster women are known for being more respond like it's just there's so much data that shows that women are an excellent investment and i'm you know one of the things i'm working on this year is or for 2020 is trying to figure out how to shift the perspective. What is it that we're missing or what are we presenting that is really making that disparity or people saying, oh, I'm not really sure I want to invest in her versus, you know, oh, I'll invest in him. What are we presenting? How can we make that platform even out a little bit? There's no question there's a confidence um, factor mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that men are better at going in and kind of firmly taking their seat at the table in a pitch mm-hmm. environment and mm-hmm. kind of projecting with confidence that they can knock this out of the park. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that women's more inherently conservative natures um, have them go in differently. in a pitch environment and there's you know data in terms of the harvard studies that were done on this and that uh, women are asked different kinds of questions more like risk oriented risk aversion kind of questions versus the kind of questions that men are asked so i think that being aware of that and being able to turn those questions around in a Mm -hmm. way that frames it around kind of opportunity focus versus risk mitigation um, is absolutely something that I think women need to think about in a pitching environment. Oh, that's great feedback. So just to close us out, what is one piece of advice that you would tell yourself back at the startup phase of Common Skew? (laughs) That it's going to be all right? Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry, you're going to be fine. <laughs> Mark and I joke about there's a, a, a conversation that took place around our dining room table about, I think, I don't know, it was 18 months into Common Skew. And of course, as soon as we started doing Common Skew, we, had, we took our eyes off the ball a little bit of what was going on at Right Sleeve. And so right. that business started to struggle a little bit from how it had been growing kind of previously. And we're sitting around the dining room table saying, well, what happens if, you know, if we bankrupt both businesses, like what are we going to do? And and, uh, I I said, well, you know, I I would just go out and get a job. And and Mark's like, I'm not employable. (laughs) (laughs) He's been an entrepreneur right from the get-go, hasn't he? Exactly. So that was the funniest part about it. But But I think just, you know, knowing that the, if you continue to have, if you, first of all, if you're on to, you know, a good idea. Yeah. And I will qualify, you know, all of this by saying that it has to be um, an idea that has legs in terms right. of within the marketplace. And certainly right. I have a lot of conversations with people where they they pitch, you know, a concept and it's like, I don't know how you're ever going to get that to any kind of scale. And, and right. it doesn't have to be a huge business, but just in terms of, you know, that you can build a business around and have a, yeah. um, you know, consistent revenue. So I think that if you, if you know, you've got a good idea, if you keep the kind of optimism and, 
you know, the, the perseverance around it, that you can, you can get over any hurdles. And it's just, I think that that's the, the beauty of the, the eternal optimism that entrepreneurs have to have is that yes. every day is a new day, you know, that it's stuff that seems kind of absolutely catastrophic at the time. Um, you know, you get through it, like we've had, you know, key people, you know, quit on us in, the, in, in key critical development, you know, time periods where it's, right. oh my God, what are we going to do? And, yeah. you know, just kind of things like that, that, uh, you know, that you just every day get up and, and take a, a fresh crack at it. And then yet you're still okay and you're still around. Exactly. That's awesome. Exactly. This has been an absolute delightful conversation. Thank you so <laughs> much for sharing about your journey. We so appreciate it. So where can we connect with you? How can we learn more about you? Um, I'm on all kind of social media. It's, uh, it's funny, I spend a lot less time on social media these days, but yes. um, LinkedIn's probably the easiest kind of way yeah. to get a hold of me. Okay. Um, I'm on I'm on Twitter, but I'm not pretty act- I'm not very active on Twitter. So <laughs> awesome! And we'll put all of those links down in the show notes so that people can connect. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out to chat with us today. Lots of fun. Great yeah. talking. We'll see you at the arena. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the Road to Seven podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. To learn more, visit SheilaCummins.com for more support along your road to seven figures and beyond in your business. See you next time.